Good morning, and thank you for all those that have been praying for our time together. It's greatly appreciated. We can't do anything without him, and so it's good to just be able to lean on him at this time. We're going to continue our series on the heart of God just with a couple of facts about the heart. Did you know that there's actually no reference to the physical heart in the Bible? Any time that the heart is mentioned in Scripture, it's referring to something other than this organ, which is the major part of our cardiovascular system. But we know that God designed our heart, and he designed it to be very busy. Um, so busy that it daily pumps about 2,000 gallons of blood um, through our cardiovascular system every day. And it also beats about 115,000 times per day. Our physical heart affects every part of our body, and we're often reminded to take care of our heart with exercise and diet, compliments of the American Heart Association. It was back in the early 60s that the, this association designated February as American Heart Month. February was chosen because it's a time when people think of relationships and love. I'm sure it has something to do with Valentine's Day. My personal opinion is that the American Heart Association would do well to adopt Proverbs 4.23 as its scriptural theme or slogan. Proverbs 4.23 states, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That verse is both physically and spiritually relevant to us. Of course, our interest this morning is in what the Bible does say about the heart, which is a lot. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Hebrews 4, 12 describes God's word as discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word heart in the Bible can also refer to the will. Daniel 1, 8 says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And there's so many other scriptural references in the Bible about the heart, actually 823 to be precise. And when you put them all together, the word heart in the Bible refers to one's innermost being. To know the heart of someone is to know that person's innermost character, feelings, or thoughts. For instance, when it comes to my wife, I'm thankful to know her innermost character, her feelings, and sometimes, sometimes even her thoughts. <laughs> to know the heart of a person is again to know how they think and to know the why of what they do. Again, everything we do flows out of the heart. And when it comes to the heart of God, it's the essence of who He is, what He desires, His will, and His purposes. Today, we just want to try to get a glimpse, a glimpse into the heart of God. And we'd like to be able to actually listen to His heartbeat. Consider John thirteen twenty three as we consider and ask ourselves the question, how can we even think about listening to His heartbeat? Well, in John thirteen twenty three. A reference to John the disciple, it reads, Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Spiritually speaking, 
That's what we're trying to do today. We want to figuratively lay our head on Jesus' chest and in so doing, listen to the heartbeat of God. We've seen in our series, we've seen God's heart revealed in the scriptures and in his son. And today we want to build on that as we look in his word to see how God's heart is also revealed in his works. Specifically, in his works of creation, the fall, the flood, the cross, and the Christian. We know that the work of a person tells us a lot about their character. When Patty taught first grade, I had many opportunities to see her at work, both in the public school and the Christian school, or even in working uh, with homeschool families as well. Her love for the children and her commitment to help them learn and the time that she put into her teaching were quite apparent. When asking her what she thought of her work, she stated that teaching gave her the opportunity to serve and to meet the needs of her students and to build relationships with their parents and with fellow teachers. Her answer gives us insight into how Patty's heart beats as she still enjoys serving others, building relationships, and it's why she considered her work to be good and why she still works part-time at a Christian daycare. This morning, since we want to get to know the heartbeat of God, we can get to the heart of the matter just by asking God what he thought of his work, starting with creation. When focusing on his completed work, how did God evaluate what he had done? What kind of a grade would he give himself? Poor, average, good, or very good? I think we already know the answer, but in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Beginning in verse 4, it is written, God saw that the light was good. But how many more times will God use that word good to describe his work in creation? If you haven't yet turned to Genesis 1, please do so. As we're going to look at a number of verses in an effort to find our answer. Beginning in Genesis 1.10, God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. After creating plant life in Genesis 1.12, we read, The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. In Genesis 1.18, after putting in place a system for lighting the earth and for separating night from day, God saw that it was good. In Genesis one twenty one, we read, So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. In Genesis one twenty five, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Finally, let's read about mankind. It has the longest description in the creation list, and it's given the highest rating in God's creation evaluation, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. He observed all he had made, declared it to be not just good, but very good. So the answer to the question, how many times did God use the word good when assessing his creation? The answer is seven, including the very good summary. But you knew that, right? You did the math. But this gives us an immediate look into the heart of God by seeing the goodness and the very goodness of his work in creation. In Hebrew, the word translated good is tav, and very good is henna tav, which is translated as certainly good or surely good. God is leaving no doubt that the work he has completed in its original design was certainly, surely, very good. So what was it that made creation very good. Was it the scenery? Was it Adam and Eve? Or was it the way that everything came together? Yes, yes, and yes. The scenery was great. The fact that Adam and Eve were the perfect couple and had the perfect job of caring for the Garden of Eden, it was good. And the success of the overall design of all that was created was good. In its original design, it was doing exactly what God had intended. Gravity was working fine. Oxygen was plentiful. Adam and Eve's hearts were beating. Everything he had made from the smallest particles to the greatest galaxies was working well. Everything is working exactly as God planned. As we listen to the heartbeat of God in his word in reference to creation, we hear the very goodness of God. And if we listen closely, we can also hear the vastness of his creativity as the many different landscapes of the world show us the magnitude of God's glory and the creative work in his hands. There's just so much uniqueness and variety in creation. Think how different each of us are. Everyone in the world since Adam has a different DNA. It's been calculated that there have been 117 billion people born since Adam and Eve, each one different from the others. Now, this is going to take some imagination, okay? It's pretty far off the beaten track as far as demographics and geographics are concerned, but humor me with this one. Try to think like this. What if, when God formed us in our mother's womb, that he had made us all the same? The same temperament, the same personality, the same appearance with all men looking exactly like Adam and all women looking exactly like Eve. And what if there was only one kind of flower, a white carnation? What if there was only one type of tree, a pine tree? What if you went to the zoo, but there was only one type of animal, the elephant, or one type of insect, the ant, or one type of fish, a goldfish? 
It's hard to think like that because God is so good and purposed in his heart to give us so much variety in his creation. When we see the original goodness of creation, we begin to grasp the goodness of the creative heart of God. And staying in Genesis, let's just see how the heartbeat of God's goodness and his creativity actually play out in the life of Adam and Eve. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, just to see what God does when interacting with this first couple. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So after Adam and Eve sinned, they discovered something that they had never noticed before. They weren't wearing any covering. So they put together a form of covering for themselves and then tried to hide from God. But hiding from God is useless. He wins every game of hide and seek. And although God's heartbeat of goodness and creativity is about to beat for Adam and Eve, first his heartbeat of holiness is going to be heard as he must judge their sin. So God pronounced some judgments one against the earth, one against the serpent, one against Eve, and one against Adam. The earth was cursed with thorns and thistles. Satan's head was to be crushed by the seed of the woman. Woman's pain was to multiply in childbirth, and man was to work by the sweat of his brow for food. Now, having taken care of God's needed judgments, we come to the application of God's heartbeat of goodness and creativity as heard and experienced by Adam and Eve. It's found in Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God's creative provision for our first parents is significant. Instead of instructing Adam and Eve on how to kill an animal and then to make clothes out of that same animal to cover their nakedness, God did it all. He made the garments, and he clothed both of them. By doing so, God showed a concern for Adam and Eve, despite their disobedience and their rebellion and their futile efforts to address their need to be covered. We just read in Genesis 3-7 about their attempt to do it themselves, where they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Knowing that they had lost their innocence and experiencing a strong sense of guilt, Realizing that they were in a fallen condition, now naked and ashamed, they experienced an immediate sense of being preoccupied with their own physical body. All of a sudden, their own body was the focus of their attention, and the fact that it was without clothing caused nothing but shame and guilt. So, realizing that they were in a fallen condition, they needed to figure out how to cover themselves. Now, when selecting a fabric for clothing, a designer needs to consider the texture, the feel of the material that they are choosing. 
When it comes to fig leaves, Adam and Eve made a very poor choice. Fig leaves are inherently sticky and itchy. When you pick off a fig leaf, a white sap oozes out of the stem. That sap feels like a sticky glue. And a fig leaf, like any leaf, eventually shrivels up. So left on their own, they would have had to make frequent trips to the fig tree for a new set of clothes. Yes, Adam and Eve's first attempt at clothing design was a total failure. As hard as they tried to cover themselves properly, it just wasn't working. This is where we see the goodness of God's heart. As we read again in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God did not accept the fig leaf garments crafted of Adam and Eve's own ingenuity and effort. Instead, he took upon himself the role of provider and gave them a much updated and needed fashion statement. He gave them clothing made from the skins of an animal, a kind of fur coat, if you will. Before that fall, Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in paradise, but now they were locked out of the garden. And although God would indeed punish their sin, this act of providing clothing demonstrates a heart of grace and compassion, not only for Adam and Eve, but for all mankind. You see, God's choice of clothing material necessitated the death of an animal. The garments of skin that God himself made for Adam and Eve and placed upon them to cover their shame required the shedding of blood and were symbolic of the salvation that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Arthur Pink comments on the garments of skin God made for Adam and Eve. It was the first gospel sermon preached by God himself, not in words, but in symbol and action. It was a setting forth of the way by which a sinful creature could return unto and approach his holy creator. It was a blessed illustration of substitution, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. Aware of our shortfalls and our sinfulness, many of us, like Adam and Eve, we attempt to clothe ourselves in self-righteous good works. We go to church, we perform religious duties, and we piece together fig leaf coverings of our own making. But God says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We know that part, part of the verse well, but the verse goes on to say that we all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. It's only by God's grace that we're saved from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. When the prodigal son returned home, his father with grace and forgiveness said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Like our heavenly father, the father in the parable embraced his repentant son and placed his best cloak over him with mercy, love, and compassion of a father. With garments of skin, God covered Adam and Eve, thereby expressing his grace and his forgiveness, all in the face of sin and judgment. If we are redeemed, we must know that we are redeemed through the gracious intervention of God. And knowing that we're redeemed, we can lift our voices and we can sing Thinking in terms of 
how much he's done for us. We can sing with the redeemed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Spiritually speaking, a Christ in you believer can never say, I have nothing to wear. God in his son has clothed us well. So in Genesis 3, we see sin, but we also see the goodness and the mercy of God. We will be talking more about the heart of God as seen in the work of God this morning. But before moving on, let's stop for just a minute, pray and rejoice, thanking him for clothing us with the garments of salvation. Allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that the act of Adam and Eve being covered in the skin of an innocent animal reminds us that your son shed his blood for our sake. Why? So that we could be forgiven of our sin, covered in his perfect righteousness, and receive life everlasting. Thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us in our sin, but provided your perfect plan of redemption for whosoever believes in the atoning blood of Christ. Thank you for your mercy and grace in sending Jesus to be the offering for our sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let's fast forward from Genesis 3, the time of Adam and Eve, and travel to Genesis 6, the time of Noah and the flood. There we can view the condition of the human race at that time. And because we're interested in the heart of God, let's look closely at God's word in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Beginning in verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. So what happened to cause the heart of God to be so troubled? Well, it was the downward spiral of sinful generations that impacted God's heart of holiness in this way. If you go through all the lexicons, the dictionaries, the commentaries, and thesauruses, all for the purpose of finding one word that would characterize God, it would have to be holy. God is a holy God. The heart of God is holy. The chief attribute of God's heart is holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, we read, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. This triple repetition of a divine attribute, it's without parallel in the rest of the Bible. Yes, God is a just God, but Scripture never says that God is just, just, just. And God loves us so much, and his heart is a heart of love. But Scripture never says that God is love, love, love. But in Isaiah 6, 3, we read that God is holy, holy, holy. This is why the wickedness of man that was observed by God in the time of Noah was so troublesome and why God had to issue a death sentence for both animals and all mankind. The Hebrew word for holy is kadash and the Greek word is hagios. 
In both cases, the meaningful holy is being set apart from that which is unclean. Our holy God, he wants to have a relationship with us, but he knows that his holiness and the evil of sin cannot exist together. So when he sees what's going on in Genesis chapter 6, his heart was grieved. So much so that he couldn't ignore the sin. He couldn't try to rationalize it by saying, oh, they just need some more time to figure it out. I'll just leave them alone and see what happens. No, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. God sees that the problem of the heart is the problem of the heart. Jeremiah the prophet agrees. He wrote in Jeremiah 17:9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? That's why the advice, just listen to your heart, is terrible advice. I've both mistakenly given and received that advice when faced with a decision. But there's no biblical foundation for those so-called words of wisdom. There's no good argument for telling someone to listen to their heart. Rather, we need to be reminded to listen to the one who gave us our heart and who knows our heart so very, very well. But the deceitful heart, in and of itself, without God, well, that's a problem. It's this heart of man that brought grief to God. And unlike us, as mentioned, God's not going to ignore the problem, nor is he going to try to rationalize it away. Rather, he's going to take action. In Genesis 6, God has a plan to deal with this evil of man, and it involves water, lots and lots of water. Sin has become so great that God decided to judge his creation through a worldwide flood. Every creature would be destroyed. Every antelope, wolf, sparrow, dinosaur, cheetah, and every human being that walked on the earth would be killed. And that's exactly what would have happened if there wasn't a verse 8 in Genesis 6. Genesis 6-8 is a pivotal part of world history. The earth is about to be flooded and everyone is about to be killed. But in Genesis 6-8, we read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's grace was extended towards Noah, his family, and two of every kind of animal that would be preserved on the ark. While the rest of the creatures on the earth would perish outside the boat, everything on the ark would survive. In this picture of God's heart, we see a tremendous measure of God's mercy, his preservation, and his love. The heart of God grieves over human nature, and yet one human being finds favor in his sight. Noah is the response of God's grieving heart. While God's heart was filled with pain at the state of mankind, one individual was finding grace. God was offering him deliverance. The God of both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the God of salvation. Yes, he has to judge sin because of his holiness, but then his very first instinct is to atone for that sin. We see the heart of God in God's grace to Noah. And God has a grace-filled heart for everyone whom we know who is currently without Christ. The sacrificial death of Christ on the cross is today's ark, where if anyone enters, they can be saved. 
Have you been to the ark in Williamstown? I love seeing the imprint of the cross on the door at that ark. The ark, the cross, the door, all in one place. A clear picture of God's grace and invitation. John Milton said, The cross is the key that unlocks the gate of glory. The heavens in all their wonder glorify God by telling us of his power, wisdom, and love of order and beauty. But only the cross, only the cross tells of his love for us as sinners. Without the cross, we are lost, alone, and separated from God. Without hope, doomed to suffer, abandoned. But with the cross, God's grace is always there. The cross is seen in the heart of God, and the heart of God is seen in the cross. But what makes the cross special? What keeps it from just being two pieces of wood? What makes the cross special is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Paul states that we preach a crucified Christ. It's estimated that approximately 30,000 Jewish people were crucified on a cross. But... We only know for certain the name of one. It is Jesus. He is the crucified one. If you're wondering about what's inside the heart of God, just think of Christ on the cross. And you realize God's great love and goodness. Oswald Chambers, in his book, The Highest Good, The Great Redemption, he captures this thought in one sentence. We can understand the attributes of God in other ways, but we can only understand the Father's heart in the cross of Christ. And his heart for us doesn't start and stop at the cross. No, God wants us to have a continual heart-to-heart relationship, an ongoing heart-to-heart conversation with us, a relationship and a conversation that is rooted in the cross. He wants Galatians 2.20 to be true in each of our lives. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if we're thinking to ourselves, you know, I've heard that before, but I just can't do it. Well, then we really don't know the heart of God. God's heart is found in his word, in his son, and in his works. And if we are in Christ, we are one of his works. The Greek word for workmanship is poimia, from which we get the word poem. In context, it's something made by God himself. It refers to a work of art, but not just any piece of art. No, it refers to a masterpiece. When we respond to God's grace through faith, not only do we receive assurance of our salvation, but we're also remade by God's creative power. We become a piece of work in the good sense. We become a poem, but not just any poem. God has created in us and continues to create in us an epic poem. We're not talking roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. No. We're talking the Odyssey, Beowulf, the Divine Comedy, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, with these last two both written by John Milton, who we quoted earlier. Those poems and more, much more, are the type of workmanship that we can become and do become in Christ. 
We're crafted with skill and a purpose, tailor-made by God for his purpose as we live in the heart of God. And it is there in the heart of God that we are created in Jesus Christ for good works. Now, we know that good works do not give us salvation, but they are absolutely meant to be the result of salvation. We have a divine purpose, which is to engage in good works that beat to the heart of God and glorify him. These good works are the supernatural outflow of a transformed life in Christ. Philippians 1.6, and he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So when you look at the life of a believer, you should see the heart of God and the way he or she lives. So the question for each of us is simple. Where is our heart? Where's my heart and where's yours? If you've never come to a saving relationship with Jesus, you need to take care of that. It's a matter of spiritual life and death. No one can truly know the heart of God without knowing and trusting Jesus for salvation. Don't think that you will get to heaven because you think that you're good enough. You're not. It's only by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross that you will be able to know the work of redemption and restoration that is found in Jesus Christ in the heart of God. For the believer, we, must, we have to remember what Jesus said to his disciples, learn from me, Matthew eleven twenty nine, And we're able to learn from Jesus in the scripture and in prayer. By reading the Bible, a person can know the heart of God because scripture was divinely breathed out by him. And he and the Father are one. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible speaks of God and his work. Scripture reveals who he is and what he's like. Reading scripture so that we can gain insight into the heart of God and so we can spend time with him, that should be our motivation to spend time in his word. Why? Because scripture just doesn't teach us about the heart of God. Applying it enables us to actually live in the heart of God. Yes, we can read the books. We can scour the internet. We can review the message from our series previously given. And all that's great and can be helpful. But perhaps we should also just take some time alone with God and ask ourselves a couple of questions. How much do I pray? How much do I really ask for God's help? How often do I give thanks and recognize God's care? How willing am I to take the time to spend with God in his word? You see, if we want to know the heart of God, then we're going to need to be still and know that he is God. David, a man after God's own heart, found that time alone with God in the morning. He prayed in Psalm 5:3, In the morning, O Lord, thou wilt hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to thee and eagerly watch. Well, whether it's morning, noon, or evening, we too must find time to be with the Lord. But in order for that to happen, we have to be willing to remove the distractions. We have to scale down our channel surfing, our binge watching, our YouTubing, TikToking, Snapchatting, Facebooking, Instagramming, Netflixing, and one that I wasn't familiar with, but apparently the Be Real app is a popular app nowadays, according to my 13-year-old grandnephew, Zane. Bottom line, there's just so much out there that clamors for our attention. 
and yet we need to get alone with God. Perhaps the lyrics from a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman called Be Still can steer us in the right direction. Be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that he is holy. Be still, O restless soul of mine. Bow before the Prince of Peace. Let the noise and clamor cease. Be still and know that he is faithful. Consider all that he has done and know that he will never change. Be still and know he is our Father. Come, rest your head upon his breast. Listen to the rhythm of his unfailing heart of love. Now, prayer is both talking and listening. It's the listening that reveals the heart of God. Spending time with the Lord in prayer helps us to know his heart, just as we need to spend time with someone if we're going to get to know them personally. So we have to spend time with God in his word and in prayer if we get to know him more deeply. The first part of James 4, 8 says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Spending time alone with God encourages a deeper relationship, a deeper relationship in which our heart becomes more aligned with his heart so that we can live in the heart of God. But you know, we'll, we will never know all of God's heart. Only God is all-knowing. Our new life in Jesus and his on, ongoing work in us, it serves to give us only a glimpse a glimpse of what the very good of his heart is all about. During his ministry on earth, Jesus healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind and he fed the 5,000. Did Jesus heal everyone that was sick? Did he feed everyone that was hungry? No, he did not. But could he have? Of course. As the son of God, he could have healed and fed everybody. So why didn't he? Some suggest that Jesus was simply demonstrating his power and authority in these miracles. And that's correct. But there's another reason, too. Jesus was and is all about redemption and restoration. Showing the way things could be. When Jesus healed the blind man, he was showing that there could be a time when no one would be blind. When he fed the 5,000, he was showing people that there could be a time when no one would be hungry. We read in Revelation 21.4 about a time when God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. We read in Ephesians 2.6-7, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that the coming age in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the, his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The word show in this passage means to reveal. Clearly, there will be the ongoing revealing of learning more of the riches of God's grace in heaven. If we have come to a saving relationship with Jesus, we will have an eternity to learn more of the heart of God. It seems that we will forever be learning and growing deeper in our knowledge of him. God is bigger than forever. And it's going to take eternity to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. In other words, we will never stop learning about the extent 
of the heart of God. The Bible reveals that God will one day recreate a new heaven and a new earth. This alone will give us an entirely new way to explore the depths of God's heart and his goodness. To think that our current world resides in a curse, but even under a curse, it still impresses us with beautiful scenery. And one day we'll see a new world and a new heaven absent from the curse of sin. We will never, ever be bored by what we have and what awaits us in heaven, but rather we will be continually captivated by the wonder of his glory with no distractions. In the meantime, my prayer is that we would live in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would bring glory to Jesus Christ. And may we take the time to be still and lay our head on the chest of Jesus, listening to the heartbeat of God. Let's pray. Father, I would just ask that you would help us to shut out the noise, to listen to you and your heartbeat as we choose to spend time in prayer and in your word. And Father, help us to live accordingly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.